0: tonight's thought never meet your heroes they say they usually say it because your heroes uh, are jerks You usually look up to your heroes because they have heroic qualities. They're good, noble people. Yet, if you meet them in person, they're jerks to you. They're not nice. I've never uh, really witnessed this before. Um, I haven't met a lot of my heroes in my lifetime. Uh, I did meet Joe Bob Briggs, uh, the drive-in movie critic of grapevine Texas who I've admired for a great many years right I used to watch him on late night television uh, back in the 90s when I was in high school and I've always followed his career very closely and I've admired him a lot a great deal and I've met him in person several times I've been to see him speak. And after his shows, he's always uh, incredibly nice. Uh, I'll go up to him and talk to him and introduce. He never remembers me, but that's okay. He's famous. He knows a lot of people. But he's never a jerk to me. In fact, I always feel like I'm a jerk to him. Like I'll be talking to him and uh, we'll get to a point where I'm like, okay, well, I got to go, Mr. Briggs. And he's like, oh, okay, nice talking to you. You know, he's got kind of a Southern accent. And I I guess I'm, I'm a jerk because I, I end the conversation and while he wants to keep talking, but I only do that because he's famous. He's got other people in line who want to talk to him, but he was always perfectly nice to me. Yeah. I mean, they always say never meet your heroes because they're jerks, but I've never had much of a problem with that. Okay. I do agree with the statement though, but on different principle. I, I I believe that you should never meet your heroes because sometimes I've had one specific time I had the experience of meeting a person I really admire, and nobody believed me and it was really annoying. Yeah, I met Salman Rushdie. You know, I I just finished his book, uh, Midnight's Children. I had never read any Salman Rushdie before. Uh, But I just spent the last month reading this gargantuan 500-page novel uh, that he wrote um, in 1981, the year before I was born. And... uh, you know, it's this book about all these uh, children who are born at midnight on the day of India's independence in 1947, and they're all imbued with these magical powers. Okay, and the closer to midnight that they're born, the the better magical power they have. Okay, so uh, the the main character of the novel, the narrator, the protagonist, Saleem um, Sanai... Um, is imbued with this gift of telepathy. He can go into the minds of anyone and read what they're thinking. And so in that sense, he feels like he's connected uh, to India's history. Right. Uh, It it was a brilliant book. It really was. And I'm so glad I read it. It was uh, very long and I, I had to, it was like a crash course in learning about India's history both cultural and political, but nevertheless, I'm glad I finished it. And I'm like, man, I've been right to admire the Salman Rushdie guy for all these years (laughs) because uh, Salman Rushdie, I had never read any of his books before, but I have been aware of him for some time. Um, Primarily just from growing up in the church here in the South Um, in the 1990s, you know, he was like that satanic guy. Like, what's satanic? You mean he worships the devil? Yes, he wrote this book called The Satanic Verses. It's evil, right? Well, it turns out, I mean, it's not really uh, evil. It's not necessarily about, I guess, Satan per se in the Christian sense, right? He just pokes a little bit of fun at Islam and, you know, treats the prophet Muhammad as a human being the way he was. It's pretty much like the Islamic version of The Last Temptation of Christ, but reading up about him years ago, I, I had this admiration for Salman Rushdie. You know, he was this guy uh, who, by virtue of writing this book, The Satanic Verses, was condemned by Iran's uh, Ayatollah Khomeini, And there was a fatwa issued against him, like basically telling any fundamentalist Islam that it's their duty uh, to kill Salman Rushdie. And this fatwa lasted for a very long time, like all the way through the 1990s, and it was finally lifted, I believe, in the early 2000s. But I I worship people like that who stand up to bullies, right? I I, I really like people like that. So Salman Rushdie, I have to say, is a hero of mine, and I found myself in an event where he was speaking here in the United States. And it was... very much like the Joe Bob Briggs event. After the lecture, he came out and he was just meeting and greeting the crowd, and I went up to him and I said, Mr. Rushdie, I don't want to take up too much of your time. I know you're a very busy man, but I just want to say, I admire you, and I I wanted to shake hands. And he had a lot of people waiting, so I said, uh, thank you very much, and again, I felt like the jerk, because I was was cutting off the conversation, but he's like, no, 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 You, you, you can stay. What are you drinking? And he asked me what I was drinking, and he pointed to the bar, and, you know, I said, I don't know, Maker's Mark? And he had the bartender pull me uh, two fingers of Maker's, and he had some for himself, which is interesting because I was told that he didn't drink that much. But I'm a complete stranger, and now here he is pouring a drink, and he has his assistant sort of say goodnight to the rest of the crowd very politely. And Mr. Rushdie uh, escorts me out onto the porch of this, you know, veranda of this mansion where we're at, where he's giving like the speech and all that. And he asks me to sit down and he says, you know, would you like a cigar? So he gives me a, you know, a Perdomo. And we end up sitting there all night long. Looking out over the greens of this golf course. Looking out into the night, just talking to each other. It was a great moment of meeting my hero. And, you know, as we're talking that whole night, he he starts telling me these stories, these stories of his past, you know, growing up in India, moving to England, going to war with the Ayatollah, all these wonderful stories. And so much so that as he's talking, it's almost like he's transporting into me. He's imbuing me with this gift for storytelling. Just by the very nature, being with this master storyteller. right? It's like he's imbuing me with the gift, not only of stories, but of great fiction. To the point where, you know, Salman Rushdie is one of these realists, right? So sometimes he will tell you a story that seems so real, but there will be something that is surreal about it, where it just won't quite seem right. As, as fact So you know what I mean He imbues me with this with this thing Where the memories I suddenly have of my own life I'm not really sure what's true And what's false So the night ends We speak and we smoke cigars And we drink whiskey until about 4 or 5 o'clock in the morning And then we shake hands and we go on our separate rays And uh, I'm just like buzzing Like what a great night and you ever have one of those nights, right, that's so great and it's so filled with magic that you, you just are not sure what really happened and what did not happen? And that was one of these nights. So that just confused me even further. And the next day I'm hanging out with my friends and I tell them, you know, I hey, I hung out with with, with with Salman Rushdie last night. You know, the two-time Booker Prize-winning author. I hung out with him. And none of them believed me. Right. They looked at me like I might as well have been, you know, talking like met a talking horse or something like that. They just said, no, you didn't meet Salman Rushdie. That's BS. You didn't do that. Right. And now that I think about it, I'm not sure that I did. Cause it seemed like such a real event i know this because it's very real from meeting joe bob briggs for instance that was real and the fact that he wanted to stick around and talk to me for a while that was real so how could this not have been real either but again he imbued me with such a gift for great fiction that i wasn't sure if it really happened or really not right so i know that a couple of weeks ago salman rushdie you know You were stabbed by an Islamic fundamentalist who didn't get the email that the uh, fatwa's over. And you're recovering from your injuries somewhere out there. So, you know, if you're listening to my show while you're laid up recuperating, you know, please give me a call. Or better yet, give my friends a call and tell them that it's true. (laughs) Or not true. Because I got to tell you, I'm glad that I met you, but now I'm really really not so sure, so sure. and yeah, never meet your heroes well from Birmingham Alabama <laughs> this is the Midnight Citizen show I am your host Mike Booty thanks for stopping by On a Saturday night No, it's not a Saturday night It's a Sunday night Whatever Yeah, those of you who are here Who are listening to this right now Who are not here right now As I am recording a live show But I'm recording a live show on Sunday night This is the second live show I've recorded this weekend Yeah Right yeah, last night I uh, came on here and I talked for 45 minutes. I thought I was doing a perfectly good podcast. And little did I know there were, there were people just exploding in the chat. I can't hear you. The music's drowning you out. You're inaudible, inaudible. Finally, when I played music about 45 minutes into the show, I checked the chat and just indeed checked everything. And yeah, the, the, the audio... Had just completely snafu'd. You couldn't hear a word I was saying. The music was drowning me out. I had to stop recording for the very first time in a very long time of doing a podcast. You know, these shows, having been doing them since 2010, I used to. Uh, I, I've gone through like a lot of phases of the way that I do the show, but I finally landed on a way that I'm I, I'm really I really do enjoy, which is just turning on the microphone and talking. With a, a couple of breaks here and there, but never ever re-recording. Very little post-production, unless something goes really r- wrong. And uh, last night, the show went so bad beyond post-production. Um, but so I just decided by that time, you know, it was like almost one o'clock in the morning, and I just I didn't have time to just, you know, do it again. So I'm I'm doing it now here on Sunday night, right? Yes, yes. Honestly, not that really doing a live show matters that much. I think that doing a live show is kind of a cool thing, but it doesn't really matter. Compare, and I'm only saying this just because of some of the experiences I've had this week, right? Yeah, this past this past week was very strange because... Um, you know, a couple weeks ago, I, I recorded a live show on Saturday night and then the next day I, I get up and the first thing I do is I post it. And uh, after I post the show, I go outside and I'm, I'm doing some work for for class and uh, I get a call. And it's it's my friend Chad, who I've known for many years. We we actually met through podcasting. He had a show and I had a show. We met through podcasting. And now Chad lives in Birmingham. He used to live in Texas, but he's moved to Birmingham recently. So he's my neighbor, essentially. And he said, Mike, I was out driving around listening to your show from last night while I was returning some pants. And uh, I just thought, you know what? I could just give Mike a call. I don't have to listen to him talk. I can actually talk to him so yeah we invented that was the thing it was the, like the pre-taped call-in show so if you have my phone number uh you know and you want to call me and talk about the show i guess you can do that <laughs> The pre-taped call-in show and then a few days later i'm at the cigar bar and uh, my buddy eric who uh, i met there and he seems to have been really enjoying the show recently and i'm in the back back room of the cigar bar there and i'm doing a little bit of work for class once again and then eric comes back and he's got earbuds in and he takes the earbuds out and he says i'm listening to your show and can i just sit down with you while i listen to it so if there's anything i want to comment on i can just talk to you about it you know has anybody else out there had this experience of doing a podcast and like uh, people that you know in your community uh do this kind of thing they don't go onto Facebook and comment or they don't go on to the comment board they just you know they just call you up and talk to you about it <laughs> that's that's what happened to me so again I like doing live shows but it's not necessarily that they matter I get more comments um in real life right that I uh you know, than I get while I'm doing the show Yeah, last night, though, uh, people did let me know what was going on. And I'm very grateful for that. I feel bad, so terrible that they were spending their Saturday night listening to a terribly mixed podcast that was just making their ears bleed. And uh, but thanks to them and and all their help, um, I caught the problem, not as early as I would have liked to catch it, but I did catch the problem. Um, and I ended up not recording the rest of that show and just going ahead and waiting until tonight. So yeah, that's I appreciate it, guys. Yeah. So um, yeah, and last week I actually did a very unique live show. Um, this is the first time I'd, I had ever done something like this. I uh, I went to Nashville, Tennessee. Kind of with a gun to my head (laughs) because, uh, you know, this KOA organization, the Campgrounds of America, uh, where I go frequently on vacation to stay in their cabins on green spaces in these cities, you know, like Chattanooga. Uh, I went there this summer and stayed at a cabin with my wife in Hot Springs, Arkansas. Uh, I stay at these places so frequently that I'm actually a member of the Nashville uh, or the KOA Value Club. Okay, so this past weekend I went to Nashville. And um, just because they they had this benefit of the value club, you know, you uh, get one free camping night a year and it's a use it or lose it. You don't get to choose when you go. So it was last weekend. So I just went ahead and decided to go and stay two nights. And uh, while I was there on Saturday night, I recorded a podcast. And, uh, you know, I just I kind of felt like I had to because uh, everything in Nashville, right, is uh, is live. You know, you, you, you walk down the Main Street, Nashville, and I don't know, it must be some kind of a law or something. That, you know, there's just music coming from every single direction, you know, live music that you go to, that you experience, right? And so, yeah, I, I felt like it would be a crime to not do a live podcast, right, from Nashville, Tennessee last weekend. So so I did. And um, that was a good experience. I did it on Facebook Live, and you can listen to it just well as watch it i haven't uploaded it to youtube yet um youtube.com slash mike booty but it is on my facebook page if you are a a member of my facebook page the midnight citizen what is it facebook.com slash the midnight citizen podcast or something like that i don't know know my own socials yeah i think it's that midnight i don't know midnight citizen podcast i'm looking it up yeah, yeah facebook.com slash midnight citizen podcast you can see the whole live stream uh, from last weekend and go and watch it okay so yeah i did that out just now. She was scratching at the door. Okay. Yeah, I don't know if you've ever been to Nashville. It's a very interesting city. I've been there a small handful of times in my life, and I don't want to cover any ground that I already trod on on last week's show, but, um, uh, of all the handfuls of times that I've been to Nashville, Tennessee, um, Last weekend was the very first time I actually decided to go to downtown Nashville or go to the touristy section of Nashville um, that centralizes the country music experience, right? And you you go there, and obviously there's a lot of famous places there, but where, where a lot of I don't know legends got their start. I'm not really a country music fan in the slightest at all, and. I, I honestly kind of feel like a lot of people there are not big country music fans <laughs> uh, I think they're playing at being country music fans and I, I'm this is not an attempt at uh, pessimistic cultural criticism at all right it's just I, I don't believe that people there really enjoy country music as it is today I think like when you walk to Nashville you walk down the main street and you see all the all the bars and um, you see a celebration of country music history. You don't really see a celebration of country music presence present. Right. (laughs) And so that's kind of what it's like. Like Nashville is, is, is a cool city, but what it really is, it's like, it's like the cartoon version of what it's supposed to be, which is music city or even like a cartoon version of the South. You know, it's like going through splash mountain or something like that, or tales of the Okie swamp. Um, it doesn't seem like a sincere place, and yeah, I don't know. I've had this theory for a very long time, probably even since I was in in high school, and uh, I went to New Orleans, Louisiana, for the first time. Um, you know, any any city that has a Margaritaville, a Jimmy Buffett's Margaritaville <laughs> bar and grill, um, I I feel like is is just an extension of Disneyland. It's not really a sincere experience, right? And and in the South, you know, Nashville is, it's nice, but I just don't think it's like you're really getting a true Southern experience there, you know? Like, in order to get the true South, okay, a place where I've lived in my entire life, you have to go to, like, the Flying J truck stop off of uh, I-65, a little bit south of Huntsville, Alabama, right? You have to... You have to go to, like, uh, the combination tanning bed and video stores out in the country. Yes, they still exist. You can go get a tan and rent a video at the same time. Uh, you can go to the miniature putting golf course and gator farm, right? that That's the true south right there, okay? Nashville, at least what I saw of it last weekend, that's not really the real south, okay? Uh, yeah, but it's a place where you see people walking by and they seem to be nostalgic for a past, for a place that never quite existed except on television. Um Or they they may very well just be so interested in this nostalgia because the pat the present, whatever it is now is especially the present of country music, right, is so terrible. I don't even know what it is anymore. Um, it's like a parody of itself, right? Yeah. I I think this actually extends far beyond Nashville and far beyond country music. I think in general there's like this obsession now that people do have with the past. I think nostalgia is obviously a very big... I mean, just look at um, Stranger Things, one of the biggest shows of the last few years. You know, completely nostalgic for a version of the 80s that, that that never existed, except in, you know, movies and television shows, okay? Like, when you watch the first episode of Stranger Things, and you see these kids playing Dungeons and Dragons, um, I don't think that's nostalgic for any kind of moment that actually happened in the lives of anybody who lived in that time. I think it's nostalgic for the movie E.T., yeah, yeah, you, you may be saying out there, oh no, I was in the eighties, I played Dungeons and Dragons, and that's that's totally fair. But I, I think um most people who watch Stranger Things, they they don't really have that experience, right? They're they're watching it because that's what they want to believe the eighties was like. Right. Yeah, I don't know. Okay. Maybe I'm <laughs> straying too far from my point. But yeah, like, okay, so here's here's a good example. I was walking around campus this week, right? If you Haven't been following the show for the last few weeks. I recently quit my job as a teacher um, and uh, enrolled in graduate school full time seeking my master's in English literature, right? So I am a 40-year-old grad student, which I think is, I mean, pretty normal. What's very abnormal is walking around on campus during the week with, you know, all these people who are half your age. I mean, that's a very strange experience. And, uh, yeah, one, one thing that happened this week um, on campus was they were having this gigantic poster sale, right? Like, every year, millions of kids across the country, maybe not millions, but a lot, okay, leave home, and for the very first time, they're living on their own, and they've got dorms, and they don't have any decor, so they need things to decorate their walls, like posters of things that they like. So, this is kind of like a scholastic book fair when you're in elementary school. Um, Companies come in and they just set up on the campus quad, um, you know, all these posters for sale. And they're like the typical ones. They're the same exact posters that were for sale when I was an undergraduate at UAB 21 years ago, right? They're the posters from Animal House of John Belushi wearing the college sweater. you know, they're the Breakfast at Tiffany's movie poster of Audrey Hepburn, you know, with the cigarette in her mouth. Um, there's the Michael Jackson, you know, thriller poster. There's all this stuff that, like, is, is glorifying a past that these kids were not anywhere near, okay? And so the same exact thing happened um, when I was an undergraduate, right? And I was kind of looking at all the posters on display of these things that these kids would have really no cultural connection to, except for the fact that they do sometimes creep into the past and enjoy some of the pop culture that was made uh, before they were born. And they want to buy representations of it and hang it on their wall. And why do they want to do that? Well, it's because the present sucks. They they don't they don't enjoy what's made for them, um. It's not it's not fun, to them. Okay. And so yeah, like I I turn forty years old tomorrow. Okay, like within about in two and a half hours it'll be midnight, here in Birmingham, Alabama, and I will be forty years old. Okay. Not at midnight, exactly. Not like the uh, character in Midnight's Children by Salman Rushdie. Right. But I, I will be 40 years old uh, this time tomorrow. okay. And, um, you know, my I was talking to my wife the other night about it, about this being kind of like the last hurrah of my 30s, you know, this weekend. And she was just kind of asking me, you know, do you have anything that you really regret about your 30s anything bad that you did and i don't think it was one of these trick questions that like significant others can ask sometimes where they're being like they're hoping i don't know maybe you'll say like yeah i regret i regret marrying you you know i don't think she was doing that she wasn't baiting right (laughs) but yeah like um i i told my wife that yeah obviously i have regrets i mean who doesn't have regrets about things I've done in my past, things that I wish I could change, right? But ultimately, everything that you do in your life affects who you are right now. And if you're comfortable with who you are right now, then you must have been doing something right. Okay, fine. All right. But I told her ultimately that of all the things that I've done in my life that I'm not proud of or that I'm not happy about, You know, living in the 21st century, for instance, has not been that fun. I'll be honest with you. It just feels like, especially right now in 2022, the world is on fire. Okay. And it's just not really a fun time to be living in. But what makes up for it is the fact that I did live for about 18 years um, in the 20th century. Okay, which is pretty, like, really kind of cool, right? Like, when I look at these kids on campus buying posters of, you know, Michael Jackson's Thriller or whatever, okay? And they're buying t-shirts. They're wearing t-shirts around on campus that have the MTV logo from when I was a kid. And they have, you know, pictures of, like, mixtapes, right? Like, they've never even held a cassette in their hands, okay? Okay. <laughs> and they're buying the Stranger Things Blu-ray set that looks that's designed to look like a VHS cover, right? Uh I can be proud because the thing is I'm not fronting, right? Like I actually had that stuff. I indulged in that stuff. I am I am very happy about this, okay? I barely made it, okay? I was born in 1982 and I turned 18 in 2000. Um I was the last gasp of humanity to not have the internet and remember what it was like not to have the internet okay um to really know understand what that was like to go to the library and be instructed in how to use microfiche right and the dewey decimal system and i remember all this and i'm very proud of it okay I'm really proud of the fact that the kids now are wanting to celebrate stuff that I enjoyed when I was a child. You know, they they want, they they really do treasure that stuff. And um, that's one of the things that makes me, you know, most proud, right? Is the fact that my past, the one that I lived in, was awesome. And theirs sucks and they don't want it. So yeah. But as I said, I am uh you know, I am on campus and I am um I do stand out a little bit, okay? <laughs> you know. Yeah. I'm in a 600 level class right now, which means that only graduate students are allowed to take it. And uh I'm not the oldest one in the class. The oldest one is my professor, but, uh, you know, there was a girl in there this week that mentioned that she was born in 1998. It's like in 1998, you know, I was getting my driver's license. That just feels weird, you know, to be sitting in there with somebody who has gone through it all, you know, gone through high school, gone through college. Now they're in grad school And they're your equal. They're your peer, right? But I don't know. Uh, Yeah. yeah. But I'm just treating it as just uh, an enjoyable experience. I'm not intimidated by the fact that I am uh, much older than the average college undergrad, right? Uh, I am enjoying walking around the campus and enjoying campus life, seeing all the kids just so excited, this time in their lives when they have, like, everything behind them and everything in front of them, right? Yeah. A lot of memories coming back, like the poster sales, right? I texted my wife and I was like, hey, can I get a poster for her apartment? I was half joking, but, you know. I did see a Back to the Future poster that I was, like, kind of keen on, but, yeah. But yeah, this this week um, was uh, pledge week on campus. You know, they these kids, you know, signing up to be in fraternities. Okay, and how do I know it was pledge week? Well, well, you know, the campus was just swarmed with eighteen-year-olds uh, walking around looking like nineteen-eighties stockbrokers. You know, they <laughs> wearing the pleated, you know, khaki pants and and the. Uh, the blue blazers and the in the the striped ties—I don't know—they're like stockbrokers are going to Sunday school. I don't know what it is, but you know, I saw them walking around this week. You know, I—I never—I just never understood. I'm not going to get into fraternity bashing. Well, maybe I will just a little bit. You know, yeah, fraternities just never really appealed to me. And I know that my dad was in one in college. Um, you know, there's this paddle that he has with his Greek letters on it. He, he displays it proudly to this day um, in our living room. And, and it's one of those things I just never understand, this this uh, need to join. I, I guess it's because, like, as a college student, you know, you're away from home for the first time. There's no mom and there's no dad. So you just instinctively want some kind of an organization to be a part of, you know, to look after you. And I do understand that. But that being said, there's some weird duality going on in these fraternities that's still happening today. Like on the one hand, they make these kids walk around campus all week long looking like, I don't know, they're, they're going to work for Gordon Gecko or something. (laughs) And then they make that they make them participate in these like crazy hazing rituals. I know that hazing in recent years has been become kind of frowned on. They don't really do it that much anymore. Um, to the extreme level but it still goes on they make them do crazy stuff just to make sure these kids really want to join right and you know there's all the like the the typical hazing stuff which is like you know eating raw eggs or something like that i don't know um going into a dark room and being told to like undress and fornicate with whatever you happen to come up against you know and there's sounds of sheep coming from all different directions. And um, <laughs> I don't know. You know, I, I just heard some of it I it, on Reddit. Um, yeah. But yeah, it, it just, it's, it's, it's really strange. I mean, I never really witnessed any of it uh, myself, except when I was at Alabama in Tuscaloosa as an undergraduate. I had transferred there from UAB. This would have been in 2005, 2006 or so. And I just remember walking down fraternity row right across from bryant denny stadium and they had these kids in like the third or fourth week at school of the third or fourth week of their entire lives living alone no mom and dad or anything and trusted to this university to make sure that they were safe and being taken care of and what do these kids do you know they they surrender their identities immediately by agreeing to take off their clothes and strip straight down to their overwashed tidy whities right? And they're selling lemonade to whoever goes by. You know, girls that they might want to date who are giggling at them, right? They're selling lemonade for 25 cents, right? This is a part of this initiation. <laughs> you know, and then they take them in, they clean them off, right? And they... <laughs> Dress them up once again like they're, you know, about Mormons about ready to go out on a mission and they make them go to biology. Yeah, it just never made sense to me. I didn't get it. (laughs) Oh, yeah. Yeah, as I mentioned earlier, though this is a uh, this is a big show for me. Yeah, this is the last show of my thirties. Wow, been doing this show now for twelve years. Um, I had a last show of my twenties, obviously, right? Um, and uh, yeah, I, I'm actually going to reach into the archive, maybe play a little bit of that. Maybe my old self can actually give my new self some uh some advice i don't know but but yeah i've got a little bit of bullet bourbon i'm gonna stick around uh uh, i'm gonna if you want to stick around with me grab some beverage or whatever and take a toast a little bit later on you are more than welcome Yeah. yeah just getting older right being a different person I was at the grocery store earlier and I impulse bought soap. Right? I saw some soap I really wanted. I don't need soap right now. I've got plenty to last me, probably another two or three weeks. But uh, but I saw some soap that I really liked and I bought it on impulse. <laughs> I already, uh, I've already started getting like some uh, birthday presents. I got this birthday present for my, um, yeah, for my mother-in-law actually sent me this book, uh, Heat 2, a novel by Michael Mann. Look at that. Yeah, that's pretty. Yeah, Michael Mann is the film director. And, you know, one of my favorite films probably of all time is his movie Heat from 1995, right? Al Pacino plays a cop and Robert De Niro uh, plays a criminal um, in Los Angeles. And it's just a beautiful movie, really nice to look at. And Michael Mann, years later, I guess he couldn't make the get the money to make Heat, you know, Heat Two, so he just decided to make it as a book. And so here it is, right, Heat Two. It's a book that I didn't necessarily want to go out and buy myself, because um, I'm back to being like a poor co- you know, I went from being a poor teacher to being a poor college student, which, believe me, is a huge pay cut. <laughs> so I don't have a lot of money to spend on things that um, I I want. Uh, most of the time i have to buy stuff i need but uh but yeah i did i am very curious to uh to read this book um at some point after i read a ton of stuff for school and all that right so yeah (laughs) heat two um yeah it says one day after the end of heat (laughs) chris val kilmer is holed up in koreatown wounded whatever the other book do you does you do you see that (laughs) they actually tell you the actors that you need to imagine playing the parts of the characters that's great i love that (laughs) yeah (laughs) let's read a little bit of it right vincent Hanna walked around the crime scene swaggering in an al pacino like way (laughs) I may have just made that up I don't know So, uh, yeah, I've never been um, a particularly good liar, Um, you know. Yeah, you you could probably tell that earlier on from my story about Salman Rushdie. Um, That was a dream I had, um, or was it? I don't know. I, I had just finished... Reading the last hundred pages of Midnight's Children and like kind of a fever dream, reading it very, very quickly and becoming so involved in the fiction, in the prose that it was very like realistic to me, you know, but, but yeah, I had that dream and I mean, I don't know, maybe it actually did happen. I don't know. I mean, who are we to say that when we go to sleep and we dream, we're actually creating an alternate reality for ourselves? And at the same time, all the people that we see in our dreams, like in this case for me, Salman Rushdie, you know, he's not having that same exact dream where he's meeting uh, me. I don't know. It could happen. And we're creating this reality. right? But most likely not. Yeah. But I, I did have that dream and I woke up and it was just like it was real. It was real. You know, it was realistic. Yeah, but just now, I mean, you probably smelled that pretty well. I was I was not doing a very good job. I'm not a good liar. And, you know, I was in, um, once again, I was in the cigar bar the other night. And, you know, it's like guys were playing poker. And they asked me if I wanted to join in and pull up a chair. And I said, no way. So I'm a terrible poker player because I'm not a good liar. It's like I've got mirrors for eyes or something when I play poker. They just know, right? Yeah. Um you know, I've never been good at that game uh two truths and a lie. You know this game? Yeah, normally you play it like it's a get to know you kind of game that you play as like a teacher or a student, right? On the first day of school. You know, everybody will go around and they're supposed to say two things about them that are true and one thing that's not 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 actually true. OK. And, yeah, everybody else will go around and they'll say things like, um, you know, uh, I once rode a horse. Um, you know, I watched uh, all of Stranger Things, seasons one and two and one day. And I once met TV weatherman James Span in a Walmart. Right. Now, which one of those is true or which, which one of those is false? Right. And it'll come around to me and I'll say something like, you um, You know, I teach school, Um, I'm a man, and uh, I once rode on a rocket ship to the moon, right? I'll be very terrible at that. I I will not be good. People will guess, right? Because obviously I'm a teacher, because I'm the teacher conducting the game. Um, I'm a man, right? And uh, yeah. Yeah, it's it's ironic that I'm not a very good liar because the thing is I love good fiction. You know, I love reading books. I've written fiction. I mean, and that is a form of lying, right? Is you are uh, creating a fictional world and you're trying to make it seem as real as possible uh, to immerse the reader, okay? But yeah, I think my problem lately, I I think honestly one of the reasons that I've had um, such vivid dreams lately like meeting Salman Rushdie you know, things that just seem really realistic is because I have been reading a ton of books lately. And, you know, basically ever since April, right, I've been reading a lot every single day. And uh, it's just because over the summer I knew that I was going to be reading a lot for grad school when it started in the fall. So I basically just did nothing but read. And I watched no television pretty much at all all summer long just to kind of train my brain to get in that space and and uh, of, of being able to embrace, um, you know, silence, you know. You know, that's what you want to do um, when you read. That's what reading does is it trains you to embrace silence and not just have a moment of quiet and just all of a sudden you have to turn on Netflix, right, and watch whatever bullshit show they're giving to you you know you 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 have to you know be ready to embrace those quiet moments and open a book and read and and that's what i had to spend my entire summer training my brain to do but that being said you know i just got so engaged with fiction over the summer and so engaged with these lies that eventually i began to see the world differently right and and this really does happen it's not exclusive to reading it really does happen when you are uh watching too much of a movie or playing too much of a video game right it's like you're playing a lot of grand theft auto and then your wife will tell you to go to the store and get some milk and the first thing you see you do when you go outside is you see a nice car driving by and you just want to like stand right in front of it and uh go like i need this right you want to do that it does you know just participating too much in fictional realities can really distort your view of the world you know like you know this this week um you know my wife and i were watching that hbo series big love you know from about 12 or 13 years ago about uh polygamists living in utah you know and now every time i go outside i'm like i'm seeing mormons everywhere I don't know. Maybe those (laughs) those those were Mormons on campus this week. You know, I mean, they were fraternity pledges, but I don't know. They could have been Mormons. I don't know. They didn't come up and talk to me about, you know, the Trinity or whatever. So, yeah. (laughs) But yeah, like you read too much fiction and you really do begin to see an alternate reality of the world. And and it, it, it can actually distort the way that you do interact with the world. Right it's like, I'll give you an example. I'll show you what I mean. Um, yeah, th- this week, in, in for my American Lit class, we had to read a story by Edgar Allan Poe. Uh, we had to read um, William Wilson, okay? And uh, this is one of his more, I think, obscure stories, but um, but yeah, before we were reading it, before the professor was telling me about it, and, and the class about it, we were sitting there waiting for him to get, to get everything set up, and get his laptop out and you know drink his water or whatever and um yeah he's he's kind of uh just getting things ready and i'm talking to one of my classmates and i just start hearing this girl behind me saying like uh how'd you do in that on that old english quiz and i turned around to her and she said oh my gosh i'm so sorry i thought you were this other guy in my class in my old English class. And before I could say anything to her back, this other girl, two rows back, said, oh, my God, I was thinking the exact th- same thing. He looks exactly like Ben. And I was like, uh, Ben. And then this other girl on the other side of the room starts saying, like, oh, my gosh, you are you are him. I mean, I know you're not him, but you look exactly like him. You sound exactly like him. You've even got the same sense of humor. Okay. So it suddenly starts to freak me out, right? A little bit that I've got like this doppelganger on campus and I start kind of laughing at it. Oh, it's kind of funny, right? But secretly I'm a little bit kind of, because nobody wants to find out that there's somebody else like them out in the world, right? You're a unique individual. You're a cool happening guy. There's nobody else like there out there like you. Okay. So then we get into class, we start class, and we start talking about this story, William Wilson. And it's about a guy, the narrator is this character who is uh, in school, and he has a doppelganger on campus. He has a double, somebody who looks exactly like him, talks like him, has the same kind of sense of humor as he does. And I'm starting to freak out now, okay, because... Yeah. <laughs> so I take the story home that night and I read it and I get even more creeped out. You know, Edgar Allan Poe is like, you know how your teachers always tell you in middle school, you know, oh, he's scary. Uh, he's not really scary. You get d- disappointed by that pretty easy. He doesn't write stories about people going around and chopping people's heads off, right? Yeah, it's, he's more psychological horror. But yeah, William Wilson, though, the first time in a very long time, I've actually been pretty mortified by an Edgar Allan Poe story. Because in the story, the narrator is not the good double, okay? Normally in in fiction that has doppelgangers, right, the, the double is the bad guy. And the story is told from the narrator's perspective who is the good side of the doppelganger, right? He's not the ganger, he's the doppel. I don't think that's right. But anyway. But in this story, the narrator is the bad guy. You know, he's going around trying to, like, cheat people out of money. He's trying to cheat at cards. And every time he tries to do something bad, you know, the doppelganger comes into the room and tells everybody what he's up to and foils his plan. So the doppelganger in William Wilson is the good guy. The narrator is the bad guy. So now I'm suddenly starting to freak out, right? (laughs) Because I'm I'm nervous that the next day in school, somebody is going to bring this up in class and they're going to be talking to me like I'm I'm like, haha, you're like William Wilson. I don't think they would really be like that. But, you know, I was afraid because I don't want to be the center of attention in class. And I was afraid that was going to happen. You know, 35 years of being in school, both as a student and teacher, I'm still nervous to be called out in class. Right. But yeah. But I was also nervous because now I three people have confirmed it. I do have a doppelganger on campus. So I am nervous about now just walking across the, the campus quad, you know, or rounding a corner in the student center and suddenly just running smack dab into a mirror image of myself and wondering, you know, am I the good doppel? Or am I the bad doppel? Am I good or bad? I don't know. Right? It really started to freak me out.
1: <laughs>
0: yeah. Yeah, but that, that's another weird thing that you 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 starts to happen um, when you read too much fiction. I'm actually starting to think about this. Is uh, synchronicity. I think the police made an album about this. You know, it's like when two things seemingly unrelated mash up. Okay. That's, that's synchronicity. And, um, yeah, like there was another instance this week where that happened where, um, there was actually two. Uh, one was, the same American lit professor who assigned me William Wilson, you know, he's telling us the story. Um, it has to do with William Wilson and the way that we sort of assign our identities to inanimate objects that are anthropomorphized. Right. So he was talking about that movie magic um, with Anthony Hopkins um, where he plays a ventriloquist. Right. And, and he, he, Seems to be having a nervous breakdown, manifesting in the fat, in the in the, um, you know, the voice of the ventriloquist dummy, right? Um, I was the only one in class who knew what that movie was, by the way, which is another reason I'm so excited to just be part of the 20th century, right? And know what magic is. I have no idea how these kids now would find out magic, right? Or, what do they know? I don't know. What do they know anyway? <laughs> But yeah, that was the synchronicity. The synchronicity was, is that he was referencing in the same talk about ventriloquist dummies, um, Edward Bergen and Charlie McCarthy. You know, the the, the ventriloquist and his dummy, Charlie McCarthy. He was mentioning this and he was talking about how his very earliest memory, one of his very early memories was he was in Chicago as a two-year-old going to a Charlie McCarthy concert where Edward Bergen was there in front of a bunch of little kids and he was doing his ventriloquist act. And, uh, you know, my my professor was waiting in line to uh, to meet the dummy. And next to him is this um, fire alarm. And he just instinctively, as a two year old, reaches over and pulls the fire alarm and everybody goes crazy chaos erupts people start evacuating the arena and he says he vividly remembers looking over to edward bergen and seeing him instinctively (laughs) pack charlie mccarthy back in his box so that the fire would not burn him up right instinctively okay so you know yeah he he learned that day why you should uh you know never meet your heroes right it comes full circle i wasn't even planning that (laughs) <laughs> yeah. but yeah um I, I i the long story short though of course too late um the previous night i was hearing somebody talk about charlie mccarthy on the radio but anyway Okay. So. <laughs> um yeah the other major synchronicity that happened this week again i was in um in my Nathaniel Hawthorne class, reading a, uh, an article, a journal, a journal article about the Scarlet Letter, and uh, a book that I just finished, and you know, the journal article was written in, in the late '90s, um, and it was trying to compare the scrutiny that Hester Prynne goes through in the Scarlet Letter as an adulteress. To the same exact scrutiny that Monica Lewinsky was going through during the Clinton sca- uh, during the Clinton Lewinsky scandal, the Lewinsky Gate. Remember that. And the article mentioned, you know, Kenneth Starr, Kenneth Starr, like the great romance novelist of the late '90s, <laughs> who wrote the Starr Report, introduced us to the uh, to the cigar thing, right? What happens the next day? Kenneth Starr dies. Yeah, like we want to believe that um, synchronicity, like we have some kind of control over it. And I think that comes from like immersing ourselves in fiction where everything that happens is at the will and the behest and the participation of the fictional characters that we're rooting for. You know, but in reality, it's just random particles, you know, crashing together, right? Speaking of random particles crashing together, this is the Midnight Citizen show. (laughs) I'm going to play some music here for you, and I'll be back in just a minute. Thanks for stopping by. I appreciate it.
2: Well, don't go over using commas. Teacher tells me that's bad form. When I get
3: home, I think of mama. Sliding off the road in a storm. Wail well, up those school pumps. Loose those swim trunks. Take me to the lake
2: Yeah, your legs,
3: my legs, my hands, your hands. Feet first mistake. Oh, Sally. Don't feel so sad. Well, Daddy hasn't always been.
0: Swimming in a takes it out on you
3: yeah he got lost and he got hurt and he doesn't
0: know what to do with you oh then he
2: don't feel so sad
3: American England american english
0: to go through a major uh, cleanse with my phone this week. Yeah, it was just like so uh, so slow and uh, the battery was draining really quickly, you know. So yeah, I started cleansing a lot of apps, restoring and optimizing the battery. And now it's super, super fast. Like, I mean, I've had this thing out all day long. It's got like an 83% charge on it, down from 100 this morning, which on like more than 12 hours ago. And yeah, it's super fast. I'm like texting, and it's completing thoughts before I can even, I even know I have them in my head. Fast. know. Yep. Oh, what? Yeah. It's just going to start composing them before I can even think of them, and it's going to start writing my papers for me. It's going to start, you know, brainstorming my dissertation. (gasps) Cashing in my retirement and buying me tickets to Fiji. I don't know. These phones, man, they have a life of their own. So yeah, I hope you enjoyed that uh, music just now that we listened to. A couple of good tunes. Uh, you heard "American English" by The Canoes. Good tune, and the last one we heard was "Spontaneous Disappearance" by Blue Lotus. Yeah, I, di- I wasn't going for a theme tonight, but I guess like that's very like Hawaiian themed names for bands tonight but anyway but you can find that music as well as a lot of other great uh great stuff on the freemusicarchive.org uh you can use it uh, royalty free you just gotta like you know attribute it like i just did on your show um or you can just listen to it for fun i don't know heck i do that you know and uh yeah Just want to uh, remind you, you can listen to the show, The Midnight Citizen, on Spotify, Stitcher, Apple Podcast. You can listen to it at my website, uh, mikebooty.com slash citizen. You can listen to it uh, at the Overnightscape Underground on SUG, O-N-S-U-G.com. And you can watch me do the show live at youtube.com slash mikebooty. Of course, you're watching live right now, right? Um... But you can always check the show out on demand yeah you'll be glad you did i have a couple of very special thanks uh, special thanks that i want to give uh this week first and foremost i want to thank uh you know mac at the cigar bar <laughs> uh he uh yeah word has gotten around that place i guess i spend too much time there i don't know <laughs> that i do a podcast so he gave me some whiskey the other night at poker. He said, I'll give you some whiskey if you mention my name on your podcast. And I said, well, do you have anything you do? Anything you want to plug? And he said, no, just tell, tell everybody my name. So that's what I'm doing. Thanks, Mac and yeah i also want to thank you paul uh paul is just like the stand-up guy uh his birthday was last week i did a toast to him but anytime i do a live show and paul has the um ability he drops in and stays up with me and that's yeah he's he's talking to me right now yeah we were uh talking uh, during the break about um Brene brown um and uh if you've seen her ted talks if You work basically in any major organization. You've probably been to some kind of Brene Brown training in like the last five or six years. You know, she's got this um, program called Dare to Lead and you can get licensed as a Brene Brown instructor. And essentially, uh, yeah, like her her theory um, is that uh, everybody goes into work with a story that they're telling themselves. Right. And it basically comes from the fiction That we spend our lives enjoying. And it's like the dark side of enjoying fiction. Is that you go in believing that you are like a character. Kind of like in the Truman Show or something like that. And generally things go well in your life. And everybody's having a good time. But like if one person gives you like a bad look or something like that. Suddenly. Or like say they don't talk to you when you pass them in the hall at work. Um you're suddenly telling yourself the story oh my gosh that person hates me why and it starts affecting your performance and so Brene Brown has a very good message right but um yeah and I had to go through training and and Paul was actually saying he's a manager um at uh at Starbucks and I'm saying that right now because uh Paul has said that in the chat so I'm, I'm hoping that's okay Paul um but yeah, Paul said that as a Starbucks manager, he's actually had to had he's he's had to lead a couple of these, uh, Brene Brown uh, seminars, right? Yeah, he said we we did Brene Brown training for two years and then we just stopped, so, <laughs> right? But but that that is absolutely true though. Like fiction, if we enjoy too much of it, it really can turn on us and. Like, I think we all want to see ourselves as, like, the good guy, perhaps, or, like, the cool guy, you know, or girl. We want to see ourselves as our heroes, right? But then when we go to work and we have to meet our heroes in person, meaning, like, meet our heroes when they're under duress, okay? Uh, We may not like what we see. I'm really building on a theme tonight, aren't I? Yeah, this is good. Um, yeah, last weekend when I was in Nashville, I, uh, I, I took my dogs with me, you know, they're basset hounds and, um, you know, basset hounds are, I love them. They're not the smartest dogs, um, in the pack, um, and I, and I do feel somewhat guilty sometimes about having basset hounds because, you know, basset hounds have a very distinct purpose, right? They have very strong noses and they were bred to be hunting dogs, right? But, uh, you know, my wife and I uh, don't hunt. Um, we don't want to, like, go out into the forest and kill a little doughy-eyed little deer, right? So so they're really these dogs that just don't have any purpose, and we try to get them toys and we try to like um you know they've got two cats that they can play with um and i think they're very happy dogs but generally they do not have that sense of purpose that basset hounds are supposed to have right <laughs> but yeah last weekend when in 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 Nashville was good you know i brought them out and we um You know, I just walked them around the city and, and they indeed actually got, they encountered, they got to meet another Basset Hound just like them. Basset Hound's name was Rocky. Yeah. And, uh, it was really nice and, uh, it was a really true bred Basset Hound. Like I think Izzy and Zoe are Bassets are, you know, they're, they're full bred, but some of these Bassets out there, like, there are certain breeds of Bassets, right? The sub Um, They're exactly what you picture a Basset to be. You know, like, I mean, really, like, should be on, like, the painting in an English country house or something like that, right? That kind of Basset. And that that's what Rocky was, right? And, yeah, their owner seemed to be this real southern Basset owner right and yeah he was telling me that he's he's really big into the bassett community <laughs> it's like you know it's like everything has a community okay and apparently bassett hounds you know there's no exception there's a bassett hound community and he says yeah I, me and rocky we go to meetups all over the country he said he'd just been to a Basset Hound meetup in Indiana, and I was curious. I was like, what in the world is that like, you know? Because knowing my Basset Hounds, what, do you just, like, let them into a room and they just go to sleep with the hundreds of other Bassets? He said, oh, no, they get along. Like, all the owners just hang out, we drink beer, and we just watch our dogs play, you know? And they run in packs, he said. The, the men... The men, the the male Bassets separate and the female Bassets go their own way and they just run in their packs according to gender. You know, so, yeah, I found this fascinating. You know, I I was wondering if, you know, these conventions of Basset hounds, they get just as political as these other major conventions that you can go to. You know, I, I used to go to trade shows and conventions for a living when I was marketing, right? And I, I know how political those could get. So I was just kind of wondering, you know, like, I mean, do they elect, you know, like a, a mayor of the convention? Is it really fixed? You know, does like Rufus the Basset Hound go around handing everybody milk dud, milk but, milk bones? Yeah, I don't know. Um, yeah as I said earlier this is a Sunday night show and I do have to work tomorrow I am going to be cutting this show I wouldn't say short it's actually been kind of a long show Um, but yeah I don't really have too many other topics to cover tonight but um, we're going to go to the video street video store in just a minute and then I'm going to come back and I'm going to drink a toast to the last day of being thirty, of, of being in my 30s, right? So please, if you've got, like, your favorite tasty beverage, um, please bring it out, and uh, we'll, we'll do a toast to it. I got a little bit of bullet bourbon. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, and I will say this, by the way. I am going to be out of town next weekend. I know I was just out of town last weekend, but I'm going out of town yet again this next weekend to where else but a KOA uh my friends uh i got them into the whole koa experience um a few years ago and and we'll go a couple of times a year so we're going to go to this koa next week and uh and all that so i won't be here on saturday but uh i i am still planning on doing a show i probably will not do a live show from the koa uh like i did last week because Unlike last week, I'm actually not going to be alone. I'm going to be with a bunch of other friends, as I said. So, what I was actually planning on doing is um, a show at some point during the week, okay? It will not be a live show. I'll just record it, and then I'll post it later on demand. Probably on Saturday itself. I'll schedule it to go out, but... I was actually thinking what would be fun... I went to the KOA with my friends back in, like, April, and... When I went out there, I, I uh, did not do a show, but I did record one earlier in the week, and it was like a, um, a different kind of show. It was um, what I would call, it's, it's what my friend Frank Nora at the Overnightscape would call a ramp fiction, right? Where you are creating fiction, and you're creating it essentially off the top of your head. You know, you're not writing it down like in a story. You know, like on paper, you're just telling the story, and you're trying to create an entire world um, off the top of your head. And, and I know this is basically called improvisation, but it's not like, you know, improv sketch comedy or something like that. Like, you know, has anybody had a tough day today you want to tell us about? Right. Um, yeah, you're coming up with like a story and from that very small detail, you're trying to create like an entire world from it off the co- off the top of your head, like a whole spoken word story. And Um, I did this back in uh, April and really enjoyed it. It was a very short show for a short story. It was like a 45-minute episode. You can go back and listen to it. It's called um, "Turista Pellegrosso, which I believe translates as dangerous tourist. And yeah, it's basically just a story about um, that I came up with pretty much off the top of my head um, about my wife and I going on vacation to like a tropical island and you know, we run foul of, like, drug terrorists and all that stuff. I don't know. <laughs> we do that. So, yeah. <laughs> but, yeah, I'm, I'm thinking about doing a ramp fiction show this week. And, and uh, in it, I think it's going to be, like, kind of a sci-fi story um, that will be, like, my basic idea of it is, like, you know, what if time travel exists and it's been commodified? Um, and you can actually go and time travel as a tourist. You can be a time tourist, right? And so I was thinking about this. Like, what would the logistics of this be? You know, you would go to a travel agent and they would like, you would exchange your present day currency for, you know, the past currency. And um, they would have certain times open to you. Like, right, there would be essentially travel agents who would go ahead of time and scout out certain locations throughout time to make sure that it was possible for people to visit those timelines without fundamentally altering the space time continuum. So they would have to do all that. So you would only have like certain times open to you that you could travel to. It's kind of like when you go to Disney world, you basically only have like four different worlds that you can visit. Okay. There may be a lot that Disney will create in the future, but you can only visit four of them. Okay. So I sort of had this like vision this week of like, Going to a travel agent, booking your time, and as you're there at the travel agent, you kind of look around and you see a bunch of, you know, posters on the wall advertising different times that you can actually travel to. Um, and then you decide where you want to go and you walk through a big corridor of just all these different timelines that you can visit. And you might pass some doors that say, you know, like, you know, 1492 coming soon or something like that, you know future timelines you could visit but i don't know i thought it'd be really interesting and and as far as i know nobody's ever come up with a story like this if you're listening to this and they have please don't tell me because i don't want to watch it and have it taint my idea right like that's the great thing about fiction you know no idea can be done twice a basic idea can be explored more than once but you can't really uh, explore the same vision the same idea because we're all human beings and we all have something that's more unique than our fingerprints right perspective so anyway so i think i'm going to try that this week and uh, exploring the logistics of time travel and yeah that'll be uh i think a lot of fun right Alright, so without further ado, this is going to be a good one. We're going to travel not through time, but through space in our own head to the Video Street Video Store, watch some cool stuff, see their good stock, and I'll be back right after this. This is the Midnight Citizen Show. Two weeks, the three of us. New Mexico,
3: driving cattle.
0: What, like in a truck?
3: No, no, cowboys!
0: So a while ago y'all are going to be doing that the next 2 weeks yahoo
3: city folk <laughs>
4: The guests that usually come here are guests that have a dream. They have a cowboy dream. Most all of them have watched City Slickers. City Slickers has been great for the guest business because it's a beautiful show. It's wonderful. It's everybody's dream. And a lot of them see that type of movie and they want to come and they want to experience it. So they come here for a dream fulfillment. We're sort of an adventure vacation of dream fulfillment.
2: You guys guess who? Yeah, we just got a minute ago. I'm Mitch Robbins. Ed Ferrillo, I sell sporting goods.
1: My name's Naini Flaherty and I'm a psychologist.
2: My name is Jim
3: Tassi, I sell football equipment.
1: My name is Deb Mithofer and I am a land surveyor.
4: My name is Gail Hayward, I'm from Yukon, Pennsylvania. My name is Donna Morey, I'm from Conway, New Hampshire. My name is Karen Hare, I'm a dietary coordinator.
1: Like many people, I saw City Slickers in 1991 and uh, saw it three times in the theater and uh, went right home and started researching that I had to do that. The appeal of coming to a dude ranch, I sit in an office all day. I love being outside. I love the adventure of it. I've always fantasized about being a cowboy ever since I can remember.
4: I did love horses all my life and ride horses all my life, but I've never been to a ranch like this. I love the horses. I like to be with them every day and the work is, if you love the horses, it's not work. Our ranch experience for guests is a true working cattle ranch experience. So our guests go out and brand calves, our guests rope calves, our guests move cattle, our guests doctor, all of the things that people would do on a ranch our guests actually participate in and that was always my intent was to let them experience a real ranch rather than just go to a resort and ride around on horseback.
2: This is going to be great. You may feel like a bunch of pigs on roller skates for a while. We're going to be watching you. We're going to see how you set a horse and in a few days, you'll be rounding up a herd and going after strays. Came out here, city slickers? You're gonna go home, cowboy! My job here at Colorado Cow Company, as far as the guests are concerned, is we take them out, we teach them to be cowboys. I mean, they do everything just the same as I would. They go out and they help gather the cows, they help brand, they help do every part of it. We try and let the guests do more than we do, actually, just so they get the true experience and Get to do everything, we don't try and just make up stuff for you to do. If we got plenty of cows and plenty of land, that we got a lot to do, and we kind of like the guests to help us do it. We have to teach the guests enough so they can get the job done,
3: but it can't be dangerous because I don't want myself or anyone hurt.
1: Okay, uh-huh. ah. Ah. typical day here on the ranch is we help the wranglers. Uh, position the critters for feeding. After feeding, we go up, get our horses ready for a day's ride. We've put in as much as six hours in the saddle, plus um, you know maybe broken up. Yeah, broken up by lunch, and then another hour or two of taking care of the horses. Maybe at the end of the day, I'm in bed by 8:30 or 9, and I think most people are.
3: To work cattle, you have to be a team. If you don't work as a team and you work cattle, you lose the whole herd. And that's the thing that we have explored through the years, that we have to make the, the, the whole group a team.
2: Throw a rope on this one so we can go after the others. Rope them. I'm not good at it. I have a roping disability. We get people that never rode a horse before to people that own their own horses and do it for a living. What we usually do is the ones that do that, they step in and help us. They help keep the other ones tracked out and lined out. And we don't have too much problem with a beginner. We got good enough horses that we can stick them on a good horse and the horse babysits them and teaches them what to do. By Wednesday, they're ready to go on to a bigger and better horse. And that's the fun part here is they do learn a lot and they get to going.
1: Well, I think yesterday probably I did buy, like Cowboy 101. I got in a little bit too close. Well, I disturbed the herd a little bit and got a whistle from, from the big boss. That's a, the that's a sign to back off. When we were doing feeding, I'm trying to get down to the gate to get one of the mares quickly. And as I was doing
4: that, I kind of like jogged down to the fence, and I kind of spooked the horse. And I knew better. And I did that anyhow, and I don't know why I did it. <laughs> that'd be my city's liquor moment.
2: Two weeks ago, you boys was worthless as hitting shit on a pump handle, and look at you now. Usually on Monday morning, we'll have people that are so scared, they're about ready to puke. By Friday, they're one of the ones that are, we're having to say, hey, no loping, slow down, ease up. And they're just going 9-0 everywhere they go. We have a saying in our group, Advil up, in the morning, and that's what we do in the morning, is take a couple of Advil before you get on a horse. In the second week, you really don't have to do
4: that. Just like Billy Crystal did in the movie, it's the same. It truly is just like it was portrayed in the movie. They come not knowing a darn thing, and they leave ready to rock and roll.
3: That's the most common thing I see here, is that people come and they leave, and they are huge different on riding skills.
4: By the end of the week, we take them from zero to hero. We want them to start off maybe not knowing a darn thing with a dream, and we want them to go home going, I can rope that cow. I branded that calf. Hey, I got it covered. It's so fun to watch. That's the most rewarding thing in the world, to watch some lady or some guy come out here go, well, gosh, you know, what do I do? What do I do? And by the end of the week, they're like, I got it. And they're galloping across there to stop that cow and turn him back, and you're just like, got him. Perfect.
3: Hey, Mitch!
2: It's Mitch! Mitch, the kid! Curly said there's nothing like bringing in the herd.
3: People want to come here to
2: explore the western way of life. My favorite part of working with the guests is meeting all the different guests. They come from all over the world and seeing how they become kind of like one big family during the week. Um, A lot of them come back year after year because they feel like they're part of the family. And we enjoy it that way. If they feel like they're really at home here, it makes it a lot easier on us because they take care of it like it's their home.
1: Nobody's pretentious here. Everybody is very happy to work with the horses. Everybody's happy to help each other. It's really been quite an extraordinary experience. We have met a lot of friends out here
4: and everybody is out here for the same reason basically to experience the cowboy world
1: we have made a lot of new friends and we're already talking about emailing each other and sending pictures back and forth and that's been a great thing because we've made a lot of new friends and i hope we all keep in contact we
3: have given them something they will never forget we have given them something to look for and i don't know how many people we have who have been buying horses or start riding since they left us because we have given open the door into new life for them
2: first time I went to a dude ranch I was a city slicker and I went home a cowboy
4: I came out here a city slicker and I'm going home a cowgirl I came out here a
1: city slicker and I'm going home a cowgirl
0: Sorry, I'm late. I was watching the guy castrate a horse. Um. <laughs> yeah, City Slickers, right? That's um, that's a movie I had on my my mind a lot this time last year. Uh, because the, impo- the, the inciting moment in that movie, you know, the, the, the moment that gets Billy Crystal thinking that he has to go out you know, to a dude ranch and prove himself as a man. You know, prove himself who, uh, prove to himself that he hasn't lost his lust, his <clears throat> lust for life. Right, is that he turns thirty-nine? Okay. And so, so now tonight on the eve of my fortieth birthday, I have on my mind a lot city slickers too. You know, that's when he turns 40. They didn't make any City Slickers movies after that. I guess he he sort of figured out all the stuff he had to by the end of the second movie. In a way, it just feels odd about it because I, I know it sounds silly, right, but... Throughout my 30s, I always had this moment to look forward to or not to look forward to, but to at least say like, oh, at least I'm not as old as Billy Crystal in City Slickers. Because <laughs> when I was a kid, Billy Crystal was an old guy. You know, he was 40, 39 and then 40. Right? That was old. And I could always say at least I'm not as old as that guy. And then tomorrow night around this time, I, w- I will no longer be able to say that. I even had this moment today um, on the telephone with my mom. You know, she called me up. And she told me the whole story about how I was born. The same exact way, you know, Billy Crystal's mom does in City Slickers. You know, she says, I can't believe you, 39. Oh, man. But my mom said that she was not feeling well today. I was supposed to see her. Um and have lunch with her and my dad and uh, she said she wasn't feeling very well and she said you know uh, I actually felt a lot on this day 40 years ago the same exact way you know that I feel now she says so yeah (laughs) it's like phantom pregnancy my mom was having But yes, uh, I uh, went to see a movie tonight with my friend Jason, and my friend Jason, uh, afterwards in the parking lot, reached into his car, and he gave me a new whiskey glass, and this is a very special kind of whiskey glass. You'll notice if you're watching the video stream of this, got a little indention in it, that's where you put your cigar while you're having your whiskey. And so I'm gonna break this whiskey in uh, this whiskey glass in now by pouring a little shot of Bullet Bourbon. Uh, I wanted to get some Maker's Mark. That's kind of like the bourbon that I enjoy drinking. You know, that's like the preferred bourbon of Salmon Rushdie, at least in my dreams. And uh, you know, but um, they didn't have the kind I liked. I, I like, you know, they didn't have the habit and the size that I like in the uh, in the fifth. So. So I got some Bullet instead. So yeah, here it is right here. I cannot say that this is going to be the last whiskey I drink in my 30s. It'll probably be the first of a long line of shots that I drink as I numb myself into my 40s. So here it is. Uh, salute. Salute. good stuff so uh yeah did you hear about this uh guy in tupelo mississippi who uh hijacked a small engine plane and threatened to fly it into a walmart right that's god dang that's just about as mississippi as a story can possibly get um right there yeah <laughs> Now that that right there hits Americans where it hurts, okay? You know, hitting Walmart, right? Yeah. <laughs> uh, I'm on the news article right now. Let me see if I can bring it up on the uh, on the big screen here. Um. Yeah. It says right here, uh, authorities say that a man who stole a plane and flew it over Mississippi after threatening to crash it into a Walmart store, faces charges of grand larceny and terroristic threats. Tupelo Police Chief John Quaker said at a press conference that Corey Wayne Patterson didn't have a pilot's license but had some flight instruction and was an employee of Tupelo Aviation. Um, Authorities said he stole the plane, took off, and then he called in the threat to 911. Yeah, I guess they caught him, right? Um. says the plane started circling over Tupelo at about 5 a.m. Officers evacuated a Walmart and a convenience store in Tupelo because the pilot threatened to intentionally crash into the Walmart. I mean, that right there is, uh, yeah, that's a story. Um. <laughs> so crashing into the Walmart. What do we got? I, you know, yeah, do, do I have any regrets about my thirties? Um, you know, again, I think like tonight, um, as I, as I go into, you know, my 40th birthday, um, I'm pretty comfortable, right? Right now. Um, you know, the weird thing is, is that I'm making right now the same amount of money, um. (laughs) As I was when I turned 30. Um, When I was 30 years old, you know, this time 10 years ago, um, I was doing my student teaching internship and I wasn't making any money from it. And that's what I'm doing now. I'm basically doing um, a, a graduate, you know, a teaching assistantship at the University of Alabama at Birmingham. I'm not getting paid for it. Um, I'm getting a stipend at the end of the month, right? So it's basically like I'm, I'm doing the same exact thing, going for a master's, not getting paid for it, you know, just there it is, right? But I don't know. See, at the same time, I wouldn't have it any other way. I'm actually very happy at the lot that I'm in right now. Um, you know, I know that I've rationalized a lot of things that I've been doing the last few months know quitting my job uh, getting a motorcycle things like that yeah i I mean i've rationalized which is one of the things they say that you do when you start getting into that midlife area which i'm i guess i'm entering right even with all the advances in modern medicine um you know but again i think like the thing is is that life i'm not the first person to say this life is an evolution you know you're constantly evolving and doing things it's like That whole thing that it's so bizarre, I was talking about it a few weeks ago, it's so bizarre that um, you're expected to get all of your education in life at the beginning of your life before you have any experience, you know, before you have any wealth at all. You know, you're expected to just go and take out all these loans, go to college, get a degree, and then suddenly you just stop learning. You're expected to just go there and just, here's what I have, okay, so... Now I'm in my job, right? And I just again, I don't think I don't think it should be like that, you know. I, I think you should just constantly throughout your life be doing new things and reinventing yourself in some kind of a way, you know. I guess that's what I'm doing right now, um, and yeah, I don't have any regrets about that because I think in my thirties I really did learn to do that to just let go of mistakes. Okay, and, and in a way, this is a really good. Uh, I think this actually sums up this weekend quite a lot, uh, very well, okay? Um, Because, you know, last night on Saturday night, I had put a lot of work into my show, and it came time to do it, and it just failed, right? The audio failed. It did not work. You know, I think 10 years ago, I would not have handled that very well. Um, I would have been very upset about it. But last night I was just like, oh, well, you know, I mean, that happened. And I just went on and did something else, right? And just decided, okay, I'm going to, I'll just try again tomorrow night, okay? Yeah, just like rolling with it. I think I've gotten a lot better at it, right? I've rolled with it, baby. Baby. Yeah. I want to thank you so much for stopping by tonight The Midnight Citizen show This has been a long Old show on a Sunday night But I hope you are enjoying it if you're listening live Or if you're listening to it Sometime in the future I really do hope that it made your day Just a little bit better You know I enjoy giving up my weekend So that you can have a nice week right? Just for a little Bit of a time okay? says on my uh, screen here that I've been recording now for about two hours. Is that right? Man, almighty, that's a long show. It's an important show, though. It's my last show of my 30s, right? And, yeah, I hope we've created not some good fiction tonight, but some good reality, right? And, yeah. Until next time. Keep your eyes open. I'll see you on the other side of 40.